Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everybody, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about complicated dads. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it turns out that some people have a complicated relationship with their fathers. I know, who knew? Our first story today is from Eva Higginbotham. It was recorded in March 2018 at J2 at Cambridge Junction in Cambridge, England, as part of a show we produced in partnership with the Cambridge Stem Cell Institute. The theme that night was regeneration. So I'm sitting in a dark room, alone, staring down a microscope at more than a hundred fruit fly larvae, whose brains are glowing a bright fluorescent red. I had made my first recombinant fly. I'm a developmental neuroscientist because I love thinking about how you make something immensely complicated, like a fruit fly brain, from something relatively simple, a fertilized egg. And my PhD project required me to generate an immensely complicated fly in terms of its genetics. And this was the first step using homologous recombination, which in short is a way of getting two genes that you're interested in into one fly. Now these two genes were going to work together to make certain cells of the brain glow red. I grab my supervisor, he looks down the microscope. Now, we expected that about 3 to 5% of the larva would have these glowing red brains that would tell us the experiment had worked. And what we were looking at was more like 75%, which I thought was great. You know, clearly I had made loads of recombinants. But my supervisor kind of questioned this miraculously high percentage, and so I went to the fly room to check on the flies that I used in the experiment. I'm standing there with two vials of flies in my hands. One says char T2A Lexa QFAD. One says char T2A QF2. And I realize I used the QF2 flies, the wrong flies, an entirely different genetic system. It was all completely worthless. Three months of work, wasted. I sat motionless in my chair, surrounded by hundreds of vials of thousands of flies. My jaw started aching, I was grinding my teeth, and I couldn't stop thinking about how stupid and careless I was. 
As a scientist, you expect things to go wrong in the lab. But it's different when you make the mistake yourself and the mistake is just not reading the label properly. And I started thinking about my dad. My dad died suddenly six months before I started my graduate program in Cambridge. He was a famous philosopher and linguist. It's because he moved to Oxford University from MIT that I grew up in England at all. He was an old school, incredible intellectual. Our last conversation was on the phone about a week before he died, in which he congratulated me on my success in getting into Cambridge and corrected my actually already correct pronunciation of Newnham, my assigned college. He taught himself Brazilian Portuguese in less than two weeks in preparation for a conference in Brazil, which meant that he could chat happily with the men who rescued him during um, an accident where his car broke down. But the thing is, he didn't really know how to talk to his own children without making them feel out of their depth. I was both, I was both very close to and not close at all to my dad. He was very hard to be close to. He once played 20 games of chess simultaneously against 20 grad students at MIT and won them all. But he was content to just see his kids for a few weeks every year. After he died, I started thinking that I'd been wasting my life, but not in the way you might expect. I had spent so much time on family and friends when I should have just been working on seeing what I could achieve academically as my dad had. I had boyfriends and girlfriends that I spent time with. I should have just been culturing my brain and ignoring the little things in life, like health and happiness and family. When I started in Cambridge, I spent weeks in a new lab, crying silently while pipetting to classical Christmas music. And every failure in the lab showed me again and again that I didn't deserve to be here. I refused to tell my temporary supervisor that my dad had just died for fear that it would make me look weak or like I was using it as an excuse for subpar work. For me, it was one or the other. Either be an intellectual and focus on your work, family be damned, or be a weak, emotional person who needed people and would never reach their potential. When we buried him in Los Angeles, where he lived for the last 15 years of his life, I wrote a letter to him and slipped it into the breast pocket of his jacket. I don't remember much of what I wrote, but I do remember saying that I was going to be the best scientist that I could be. A couple days after he died, my mom and my siblings flew out to Los Angeles. We took a taxi to the hotel we were staying at and we're standing in the lobby. And a man walks over. He's wearing a kippah and he's sweaty and exhausted. This was David. David is my older half-brother on my dad's side. He's in his 40s, he converted to Judaism in his 20s, and he lives outside Boston with his wife and two sons. There's a photo of me in a stroller and long-haired, skinny, tie-dye t-shirt wearing teenage David kneeling next to me. But bar an afternoon visit when I was nine, we hadn't spoken, let alone met, until my dad died. We all head up to our rooms, and a few hours later, my mum asks me to run a message down to David. So I head downstairs, I knock on the door, just intending on passing on the message and then heading back upstairs to my room. But David opens the door and says, come in. I'm sitting on the mini sofa and he's sitting on the bed, and the curtains are drawn, but the lamp is on and it's warm and dark inside. And we start talking. We talk about my brothers and my sister. 
We talk about how on earth I'm going to finish my undergraduate degree. Now my dad has just died a few weeks before my final exams. We talk about his years spent studying at the rabbinical school in Israel. And we talk about dad. We talk about what it's like growing up with an emotionally distant father, about what it's like being left as a young child. Despite 20 years age difference, despite his growing up in Boston and my growing up in Oxford, our aches and pains and joys in the father we shared were the same. And David never had a sister, never had someone he could talk to who understood what it was like growing up with dad. And for me, it was like looking to the future, talking to someone who had 17 extra years of dad processing time. We stayed in touch, and a few months later, I traveled to Boston to stay with him for a week. I was nervous, because although we'd been talking a lot, I was going to be meeting my sister-in-law, getting to know my nephews. David looks so much like my dad. He says, hmm, like my dad. He thinks and analyzes like my dad. After my dad died, my grief felt wet and hot and like I was looking over the edge of a never-ending black pit. And as terrible as I felt and as unlucky I felt, I also knew that I was lucky because I was gaining a brother. During that visit, David and I are sitting at the kitchen table and Ellie, my nephew, comes rushing in. He's coming back from his first day at a new middle school. Ellie is running around the kitchen, putting together crazy combinations of food in the new toaster oven. And David is asking him, how was school? How are the teachers? You know, and Ellie is chatting away. And David's also gently checking in with Ellie because Ellie's in a new school now, away from most of his friends, if not all of them. Now, I know that my dad loved me very much, but witnessing this familial scene of father checking in on son just reminded me of the fact that that's not how my dad expressed his love. He bought me books on my birthday, and we sang Gilbert and Sullivan in the car when I was 10 with my brother, and he taught me blackjack and rummy and chess. And I will cherish those memories, and I will love and miss my dad for the rest of my life. But he wasn't around to see if I understood my homework. He never hugged me if I was sad. He never told me everything was going to be okay. He didn't know how to. And as an adult, that makes me so sad for him. It makes me wish that I could go back in time and say to him, you know, maybe everything could be okay. Whereas David could switch so easily from dad making dinner mode to intellectual mode. We would go on walks in the woods in the summer sunlight, Starbucks in hand, and he would tell me about Jewish mysticism and American politics and theology and philosophy. We would go from discussing the Watergate scandal to laughing hysterically as I explained to him that in England, how much milk you put in your tea and whether you have sugar or not is something people will subtly judge you for. On my last day of that visit, David and I sat down on the sofa in the living room because he wanted to tell me that the night before he'd been lying in bed and had been overcome by a feeling of love for me and with the knowledge that he wanted to know me, he wanted to be there for me and he wanted to be there to help me if ever I needed it. And in that moment, I knew, 
I hadn't been wasting my time all these years investing in my relationships because David showed me any failure in the lab I didn't have to automatically compare to my dad's success and my dad's ambition. 14 months later, after that disastrous day in the lab, I'm sitting in another dark room, alone, staring down a much more expensive microscope at a single fruit fly larval brain. I'd redone that recombination that failed and many others, all to try and make my fancy, complicated super fly. I'm on my last slide of the day. I've already accepted the fact that I'm probably going to have to do, redo at least one stage of this process for what feels like the hundredth time. But this time, I'm not panicking. I'm not grinding my teeth. It's just another day in the lab. And I've actually learned that losing three months in the first year of your PhD is not that bad. I'm staring at the computer screen, and I can see the cells of the brain. Some of them are glowing red, some of them are glowing green, and some of them are glowing blue, each for a different key neurotransmitter in the fly central nervous system. My heart starts racing. I'm up and pacing around the room, dancing with myself because I cannot believe that I've done it. I have made my super complicated fly. I run downstairs to tell my supervisor. I take pictures on the computer screen and send them to my family and friends, who all respond saying, that looks nice. <laughs> Which is good of them because I gave them no context whatsoever <laughs> to explain that I had spent a year and a half working towards that moment, and I had done it. I still had a long way to go in my PhD, and I still do. And in those intervening months, I had moments of total self-doubt, total lack of belief that I belonged doing a PhD, that I was good enough for this. But I also grew and changed in so many ways that cannot be measured on an expensive microscope. I had realized that I could be a compassionate person. That didn't automatically make me a bad academic. And in the end, I choose my priorities over my dad's. I choose my happiness, my family, my friends over my ambition. I can care about fruit fly brains and I can care about people too. That was Eva Higginbotham. Eva is a third-year PhD candidate in the University of Cambridge's Developmental Mechanisms program. She works with fruit flies to discover how neurons decide their neurotransmitter phenotype during embryogenesis, uh, which are all words I've definitely pronounced correctly. <laughs> but she has been fascinated by all facets of developmental biology since her undergraduate degree at the University of Manchester. Before we move on to our second story, I just want to remind everyone that Story Collider is celebrating Pride Month this June. So every episode this month will include a story from someone who identifies as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer. And we'll be sharing highlights from some of the relevant stories in our back catalog on our Twitter and Instagram feeds this month as well. So follow us there for more. Without any further ado, our second story today is from Nissa Greenberg. It was recorded in March 2018 at Caveat in New York. The theme that night was brain awareness. 
So like seven years ago, I was back visiting my parents, and uh, I was feeling uh, like an existential uh, loss of identity, of like, who am I? Why do I have to exist? Uh, what am I going to do about it? Uh, you know, because I was, um, I don't know, because I was visiting my parents. Uh, I was like listening, I was in the living room and I'm listening to my dad be like, uh, you guys uh, want pizza? We could have cheese or we could have pepperoni. And I'm looking at my mom and we're like making these eyes that like we make at each other that just mean like, I don't know how to answer his fucking stupid questions because he doesn't mean cheese or pepperoni. He means rice dream cheese and uh, soy boy Ives pepperoni. I see all of you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's because you didn't grow up in a health food store with a vegan dad who thinks that you don't have to refer to fake cheese as fake cheese because he goes, no, well, your cheese is fake cheese. He's like the Donald Trump of fake meats. He's like... (laughs) I didn't think fake and... I thought that fake and bacon was the real... I didn't... I'm not a very... I'm not a linguist. Uh... So I do what I do when I feel this sense of loss, this of identity, uh, and I, I went online and I started doing one of those tests. The um, what do you call the, the? There's like a strongly disagree, strongly agree, sort of like spectrum. The what? What do you call those tests? The um, Asperger's diagnostic exam. Uh, <laughs> and my mom is hovering. Because that's her verb. And uh, she, uh, she goes, what are you doing? And I, I tell her, I'm taking the Asperger's diagnostic exam. And she goes, oh, we should do it as a family. And so we did. Uh, and what I mean by that is we did not each individually do that. We compromised on answers uh, and took all 136 questions very seriously. Um, Question 96 is what stood out to me uh, because the question was, uh, you know, strongly agree, strongly disagree. Uh, You know when to apologize or say thank you correctly. And we all immediately went, strongly disagree, as though, like, that was what bonded us together as a family. Like, this is what makes the Greenberg-Erickson clan who we are. It should be on our family crest. Like, thank you or sorry, or whatever, whatever you want, just pretend I said that. Because um, family is an inherently oppressive structure, right? I think that, I mean, like, love is just like mutually assured resentment that keeps you showing up for each other, right? Thank you, at least one person agrees with me. But I, I say this to say that I do, I do love my family a lot. I'm an only child. I have to. And um, so when I heard that um, my dad had been airlifted uh, to Bangor Hospital um, after a bicycle accident, I was on the first plane to Maine. And uh, that was two years ago. I... Um, I went directly from the airport to the hospital, and I start walking. Uh, I'm walking down the court, the hallway that he's supposedly staying at, and um, all I can think is, like, he's not supposed to be here. My dad is the 
My dad is the person who will stay up till 3 a.m. with me debating whether or not you can feel uh, empathy for Sean Hannity or... Uh, We'll, uh, we'll, we'll spend all, all day arguing about whether or not a boycott is a valid form of political protest. My dad has spreadsheets, like plural spreadsheets, with all of the nutritional facts of every vegetable so that he can determine what vegetable you could live off fully. Um, and these people in this wing are brain dead. There's just moaning, there's gasping, and it just people look like zombies. And he's at the end of the hallway, so I walk all the way down, dreading what I'm going to see, and what I see does not pacify me in any way. He's got blood crusted all over his face. He's, uh, he's laying in bed, uh, looks confused, and there are about six doctors and nurses surrounding him who look equally confused. And he looks up and he sees me and he says, oh, see, uh, here he is. Here's my son. Um, he can take me home now. Uh, we, I got a meeting tomorrow. And they all look to me as though I'm supposed to have an answer to this question. And uh, I say, Dad, we're not leaving right now. He goes, why not? I got to go to the bike MDI meeting tomorrow and I say you have your let me talk to the doctors real quick he goes all right fine but we got to get out of here so I talk to the doctors and what I find out is that there are three major things wrong my dad has a broken hip which needs uh, which cannot take surgery um, uh, and he needs physical therapy to fix it they don't know why he crashed his bicycle he has um, localized amnesia around the moment uh, but they think that there's something wrong with his heart and so they want to monitor that and he has um, a brain injury uh, that they uh, that they say is like a, a swelling or a, 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 a flooding of a part of the brain, which means that he's going to have he has a loss of short term memory, um, a loss of an understanding of what danger is, and uh, and impulse control problems. That's what they think, and they say the brain injury will probably get better. I really don't like the word probably coming from a doctor. I don't think that they should be allowed to say that. I feel like if you, if you dress like that, you don't get to say probably. Uh, like if, if, if they had like shaman beads and some robes and they said probably, I'd be like, all right. Uh, but like if they wear a lab coat and a clipboard, they got to say yes, no, black, white. That's... They've committed to that form of colonization. They, my point, what I'm really trying to say is, is that, that uh, the apple hasn't fallen off the tree. I am essentially my dad. Uh, and um, and uh, I, when, I, when I say things about my dad, I just want you to understand that like, I might be a little mean to him, but I, I think of it as self-deprecation, just one generation removed. Uh, <laughs> So I, I, uh, what I see when I'm with him is th- that I see that he definitely has a brain injury, and I know that he has one because uh, at one point he points uh, over across the hallway. This is d- day two that I'm there. He points across the hallway, and he goes, what's that? And I go, a, a nurse? And he goes, no, no, what's she drinking? And I say, a Mountain Dew? And he this is my dad who, drew, who ate only tofu, spinach, and rice for a full year once. He goes, oh, give me one of them. <laughs> and I said, a Mountain Dew? And he goes, yeah, yeah, what's wrong with that? Said, uh, no, n- nothing. I think I could quote you to say I think it's just toxic sludge. And he goes, no, nah, no, nah, it looks good. It's cold. 
So I responded how any good son who wants to make fun of his dad later would, and I said, code red or regular? Uh, I went and bought him the Mountain Dew. I brought it back, and he starts drinking it. And I, I don't think I've ever relished any interaction with my dad more, just watching him suck down this Mountain Dew. And just apathetically, too. Not even like, oh, my God, this is good, or oh, my God, this is great. It was more just like, oh, yeah, this is a drink. And there was something so sweet and tangible about that um, until the, doc- the heart doctor walks in and says, what is he doing? And I said... He's drinking a Mountain Dew, and he goes, he can't drink caffeine. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, he's supposed to take this stress test. We're going to have him run on a treadmill. And I go, excuse me, let's walk outside. Do you understand he has a broken hip, and you, get, you told him not to drink caffeine when he has no short-term memory? And he goes, oh. So I come, I realize I have a plan now. I have to get rid of three doctors. By the end of the conversation, I've gotten rid of the heart doctor. Uh, he, he explains to me that he needs to go through this stress test, but it can happen over any time over the next three months, and I need to get him home. And the reason I really need to get him home, because to me, and I, I know to my dad, a hospital is not a place uh, to recover. It's a place to survive. And I desperately need my dad to recover. Um, I'm not ready to just have him be surviving, and I need him home. Uh, we live two hours away from the, air, from the hospital, um, and my mom is driving up every single day and back, and she's getting tired, and, uh, and she has to take care of the horses back home. It's, we just aren't, we're not, we're not capable, and I have to go home in a week, we're not capable of uh, handling him in the, in the hospital any longer. Um, so I get rid of the heart doctor. I talk to the hip person, and they, uh, they say he has to pass two physical therapy appointments, and then we can transfer him to a physical therapist back uh, closer to home. And then I focus my attention on the brain doctors. What they do uh, with a brain injury, so like if your arm's broken, what tells you that your arm is broken is your brain. When your brain's broken... What tells you that your brain's broken is nothing, because it's broken. So what they have to do, what they choose to do, is just test him over and over to see how he's changing, see in what ways his brain is uh, changing over time. And they test him with things to see if he's uh, okay. To test him with questions like, um, uh, Mr. Greenberg, if... Uh, you got pulled over by a police officer. Could you give a reason as to why? And he said, my dad said, oh, well, uh, I do own a health food store. <laughs> now, to them, there's large logical leaps. He's not connecting dots. He can't create thought patterns. To me, I understand my father, and this is a very direct correlation. He thinks that vegans are the most oppressed minority in American culture. <laughs> And he thinks the cop saw him and was like, oh, look at that long hair. Let's cut his hair off and make him eat bacon. Uh, that was day three. Day four, I take him down uh, to the butterfly garden in the wheelchair. He's, at this point, wearing his um, gown backwards because he got angry at the nurse and said he can wear it how he wants. He can't. Uh, 
He's in the, we're in the uh, uh, butterfly garden, and I'm explaining to him what I do for work for like the 6,000th time, uh, which is I go and I teach, uh, teach, I teach workshops to nonprofits, essentially. And, uh, and he really globs onto that idea, and so he uh, asked me to wheel him over to some nurses who are on their cigarette break. And he, bloody face, gown, backwards, wheelchair, says, excuse me, ladies. And they turn. And he says, are any of you involved in any non-profits? <laughs> they answer as you would expect with silence and confusion until one of them says, no. And he goes, really? As though this is a surprising answer. And then just looks at me and says, well, let's go. <laughs> They're not worth our time, guys. <laughs> um... That gets back to the doctors. They think, oh, my God, he has no sense of, like, personal boundaries. He doesn't understand how to be in the world. And I think, well, yeah, but that was true, like, six weeks ago, too. Uh, that was day four. Um, day six, I, I think I'm going to get him out of there. He uh, had to pass one more brain test, the very condescending uh, kitchen test where they bring him into a fake kitchen and then stage scenarios that he might have to deal with. Uh, like the milk has spilled on the ground and there's a knife nearby and there's a toaster dangling over there. What do you do? And he passes it pretty eloquently by going, uh, I just go, Karen, which is my mom's name. <laughs> Which is how he would deal with all of those situations. Uh, and he's back in his room, and I'm, I'm going to get him out of there. I, I mean, like, I'm sure this is it. And a nurse comes in and says, um, Mr. Greenberg, uh, I'm really sorry, but you have to do one more physical therapy, um, uh, learn how to walk up and down stairs, and... Uh, the physical therapist who's supposed to uh, do that is on their lunch break, and then when she gets back, she has three other appointments, and she might not get through all of them before five, in which case we have to keep you overnight one more night. And I, who have been fighting to get him out of there every single day, just start crying. Just tears of exhaustion. The tears that you don't, that aren't like even, I'm not sobbing, I'm exhaling. I'm exhaling emotions through my eyes. And I look up, and my dad is looking at me. And he looks over at the nurse, and he goes, what's he doing? And I cry a little bit more. And the nurse sees that I'm struggling, and she says, he's advocating for you. And he goes, I don't need to cry. And I see what the doctors see for the first time, I, I want it to be the brain injury because I don't want to have to admit or reconcile the idea that that's him saying that. Um, we, uh, it's been two years since then. My dad's brain injury has uh, healed um, he's 70, though, and uh, his mom got Alzheimer's in her early 70s. And when I go back uh, to visit them, my mom will hover over to me at some point pretty regularly and, and tell me some story of something that he did. And she'll ask, you know, 
Do you think is that is that like the brain injury coming back or Alzheimer's or is that just him? And it's to be honest, it's pretty hard to tell most of the time. Um, but I think through this experience, what I realize is it doesn't matter. Uh, to some extent, it doesn't matter because like that's why I take those tests. I I'm trying to understand if those that the feelings of alienation that I have in the world are is are diagnosable. If I have something that I can point to or if I just if it's just my personality because if it's my personality I got, I got some self-work to do. I got to fix it. But if it's like a diagnosis like I don't know, that's your problem. Um <laughs> Right, that's how it works. Uh So I, I, but I, I guess I through this this um, experience realized that it doesn't actually matter. What matters is that in that mo in the time in that hospital, what I what my dad needed was to be treated like a human, no matter if it was his personality or or brain injury. Uh, he just needed to be treated with like respect and listened to and cared about and like paid attention to. And I, instead of what I think happened is he got treated like a test subject, and it confused him, and it made it worse. Um, I guess what I'm saying is if somebody comes up to you and they got blood all over their face and they ask you if you're involved in, like, a very specific type of economic model of business, like, maybe that person's just advocating for their child. You know? You don't know. Thank you. Or sorry. Or... What, you know, whatever you want me to say, just pretend I said that, all right? That was Nissa Greenberg. Nissa is an educator and storyteller who has won multiple story slams and first-person art slams. He teaches math to high schoolers and storytelling to adults. He is the person behind the show's Drawn Out, Bad Feelings, and VHS Presents... And he's also a story quieter producer and one of my good friends. Find out more at nissagreenberg.com about Nissa, not our friendship. You have to ask about that. The Story Quieter is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Quieter is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our amazing team, the stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, as well as Paula Croxon and Liz Neely. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to J2 at Cambridge Junction and Caveat for hosting these shows and to my own complicated dad. Happy Father's Day. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.